All right. <clears throat> Somebody could give me a sound check. It says on my little computer that I have excellent, uh, excellent sound going through, but sometimes that doesn't work out. And I wanted to see if that was the case. Good morning out there in Internet Land, Fritzberger and bloodandfaith.com. We're doing a lot out of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And you'll probably probably haven't had a Sermon on the Mount sermon quite like this one. But I can assure you it's all in there. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to do James 4, 4. We're going to do Matthew chapter 10. We're going to do Luke chapter 6. And probably when we get done, we're going to have a little prayer time with just whoever is in the room here in Holy Communion. But let's get started. Lord, bless this time and bless this word and uh, change our lives, change the church and change the world in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is generally where Jesus Christ most people consider this some of the most important things he's ever said. And I don't know that Jesus Christ said anything that wasn't absolutely important. I don't think you can rank order what he says as the most important or the least important. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think they're all important. I think all the words are eternal. They're forever. His words are forever and ever and ever and ever. Some people like to uh, contextualize his words, historically contextualize his words, saying, well, this is what he meant at that time. And it only applied to them. It only applied to those people. And it was conditioned by the mores and the customs and the uh, traditions of the day. And so we should interpret what Jesus Christ said with that in mind. And since times have changed and mores have changed and customs have changed, we're not really bound by all that Jesus Christ said. In fact, one of the greatest propagandists of that point of view are a group of people who call themselves, they call themselves Jews. They, that's what they call themselves. And they're very proud of it. And they've written about this a lot. And there's, they've written about this to Christians. And, and uh, I've shared with that a number of times at bloodandfaith.com. Uh, there's a great article in the Jerusalem Post from a number of years ago. And they talk about the New Testament and what they, what they brag about. And they said, listen, we're very proud of our ability to take the written word of God and interpret any way we want to interpret it. So we're very proud of that. That's a fundamental part of Judaism, they proclaim. And in the same article, they say our job is to take, help the Christians do things the same way. Just like we have taken the laws of Moses and the prophets and we have reinterpreted them to, to fit however we want to make them fit, we want to help the Christian church do the same thing because after all, there are many things that Jesus Christ said, many things that the apostles said, many things in the epistles that are quite frankly and irredeemably uh, anti-Judaism, anti-Jewish, counter-Jewish. And many Jewish scholars have written about these things, and they said, look, this is not a one-off. It's embedded in the heart of this body of scriptures that Christians call the New Testament. And that is a, that's something the devil does. He did it in the Garden of Eden. Let's be clear. The devil did that in the Garden of Eden. Well, he goes up to Eve, and what does he say Eve? Has God really said? Did God really say? Eve said, the Lord says on the day that we eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, we'll die. And the devil says, did God really say that? 
Nah, you're not gonna die, Eve. All right, this is this is what the devil has done from before the fall of mankind. Let us not get let us not wonder what that he does it the same today. Let us not wonder that unfortunately those people did that, and it's let let us not be surprised when the church does the same thing. Did God really say that? Surely he didn't mean that. Let's take that in context. Let's do something different with it. So it's a trick the devil has used from the very beginning. John chapter 5, verses 10 and 10, 11, and 12. Aurora, would you like to read those? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of you. Thank you. And I'm going to read it aloud for the people on the internet. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way that persecuted the prophets who were before you. Question. This is a time of self-reflection. Are, are we being persecuted? Is the church being persecuted in America? Are they saying all kinds of evil things against the church? And if not, who has the problem? Don't blame the devil for doing the devil's job. The devil's got a job. The devil's people have a job. When, when you look at these scriptures, sit back and ask yourself is, why is the church of Jesus Christ not being persecuted for righteousness in America? Ask yourself that question. How come it's all get along and go along? Now, if we lived in a Christian culture, if we lived in a culture that honored Jesus Christ publicly by government officials, if we lived in a culture where the Ten Commandments were on the walls of the schoolhouse, if we lived in a culture where we, we abided by a Sunday Sabbath and shut everything down on a Sabbath day, if we lived in a culture where TV programs exalted the Word of God and Jesus Christ, if we lived in a culture where all the evil that comes out of Hollywood and, and, and on TV and on the radio were utterly rejected, if we lived in a culture that truly yearned to, to please God as a culture and a nation, and we weren't persecuted, then that would be fine. Then it'd be okay, okay, that's fine. The church has done its job. It's converted the culture. That's the job of the church, the Great Commission. The Great Commission, go forth and bring discipline to the nations. But we don't. We live literally in a culture where you go down to the local grade school and they're teaching little kids how to be trainees and worse. They're propagating what they're, it's child abuse. They're trying to convert innocent children to do evil things. That is the culture we live in. Now, I don't see a great deal of persecution against the church of Jesus Christ out there. So my question to you is why? Why is this the case? How come there's no persecution? That, oh, you know, you're a Christian. Oh, we're so happy. You get a little pat on the head and 
you know, go do your little church thing. Because, uh, you know, you're just like us. You're against, you're against all the evils of the world. Don't be racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, queerphobic, intolerant, divisive, and anti-Semitic. What's going on? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You want to read that, uh, the first two verses there? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. You, church, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's a lot of darkness in this world. There's a lot of darkness in this world. And if the church, if the church's lamp was lit, the world ought to see that. And it ought to hurt their eyes. We live in a culture accommodating and normalizing fundamentally evil things, especially what we do to our children. And it's considered normal, it's considered right, it's considered good, and nobody's eyes are hurting. In other words, the church's light is so dim, ain't nobody screaming. Remember when you're a kid and mom or dad comes in your bedroom at 10.30 in the morning and they open up the curtains and they turn on the lights and you start screaming, oh my God, turn off the lights and close the windshields, I'm trying to sleep. How come that? How come the world doesn't do that with the church? My question is: <laughs> Is there something wrong with the world, or is there something wrong with the church? It's a rhetorical question, but it's a real question. The Bible says the, uh, a man is known by his church, by his fruits. So is the church. The fruit of a healthy church is, frankly. Anger and hatred towards the world, towards the church, by the world. The fruit of a healthy church, honestly, is, is nations that are discipled, that are brought to discipline. The fruit of a healthy church is cultures that are changed, that begin to worship Jesus Christ. Now, it won't start out that way. If you go back and you read about the apostles in the book of Acts, you read about Jesus Christ, that baby, their light was on, their light was bright. And what was the reaction? It was hatred, anger, and ridicule, and murder. And we're going to get into more of this. Now, if, if the, the world is accommodating the church, and the world loves the church, and the church gets along in the world, either society is so converted to Jesus Christ, that we're all one, or the church itself has a problem. The fruit of a healthy church writ wide is a culture that's converted to Jesus Christ. But if it doesn't, if it's lost its flavor, it's not good for anything. It's not good for anything. It's trampled out, it's, it's cast out and trampled, trampled under the feet of men. Verse 17. 
Oh, this is one of my favorite verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Don't think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Oh, this gets to the heart of the modern church. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Don't you dare think that. Don't you dare think I came to abolish the Ten Commandments. Don't you ever dare think I came to abolish the Ten Commandments, says Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I did not come to abolish them, but to make them full, to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Preacher, this is for you. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called a least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. You want to know the, 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 the commandment that Jesus Christ really honed in on and preached? The fifth commandment. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. These people, these Pharisees, they came up to Jesus. They want to talk about hand washing. Jesus goes right to the fifth commandment. He goes right to the fifth commandment. He says, you Pharisees, you undermine honoring your ancestors. You undermine honoring your parents. You displace the authority that your that one's parents and one ancestors has in their own lives, and you replace it with yourselves. He went right after the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is about honoring your father and mother, and by extension, honoring your ancestors. And Jesus Christ said, hey, if you speak ill of your ancestors, you speak ill of your father and mother, Jesus Christ said he ought to be put to death. And especially for white people, we go to schools these days and people are taught to hate their ancestors. They're taught to hate their father and mother, their immediate father and mother, and their father, and the father and mother of their father and the mother. We're taught that in government schools. We need to rebel against this antichrist spirit. Oh, but when you do, what are they going to do? Oh, you're one of those people. And immediately they're going to come back and they're going to accuse you of evil things. And that's why the church is silent. The church wants to be friends with the world. James chapter 4, verse 4. Can you look that one up? That's good to get those thumbs moving. You adulteresses, James 4, 4. It's towards the end. When I was a youngin', I had to memorize the books of the Bible in order. And it's still with me to this day. It's very useful. Uh, but short of that, you know, nothing like uh, getting those thumbs out and getting those thumbs working. James 4, verse 4. Yep. All right. This is this is a powerful, powerful verse. You adulteresses. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And is there anything greater in the world that's, that's praised 
and being friends with everybody and being tolerant and being diverse. Tolerance and diversity are not Christian values. They are not Christian values. Tolerance has never been a Christian value. Getting along with the world is not a Christian value. If you want to be friends with the world, you make yourself at hostility with God. How do I know you're friends with the world? Because the world doesn't hate you. If the world does not hate the church of Jesus, we've made friends with the world. The world is going to do the world. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. And this ain't got nothing with how many, it got nothing to do with how many cigarettes you're smoking. I don't want to hear about your cigarette problem. It's got nothing to do with that. The church of Jesus Christ poses publicly and, and prances around and pretends to have the righteousness of the world. Look at me, look at me. I'm not, and I'll give you my whole list of my favorite words out there, racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, like some people are. And the world loves you and the world praises you. All right, Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Let's get you up on up to speed on that. There's another Bible. Well, you want to do your electronic Bible? That's fine. Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Yeah. 26, 26? 6, 26. Luke 6, 26. And we will close up early because uh, there's there's competition for the space I now occupy. Uh, but we will have this out there and it'll be recorded. I've also got some great articles out there at bloodandfaith.com. Yeah, you got that? Yes. Fritzy? Woe to you and all these people on the for that is how our father's treated the false prophets. Okay. Luke 6, 26. In fact, I could have pulled that up too. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke, Luke Skywalker. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. You got preachers out there that the world loves. They're so tolerant and diverse and inclusive. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's what goes around my workplace. Oh my God, you got to be DEI, DIE. Woe when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to, to those who hate you. All right. The best way to love your enemies is to tell them the truth, not to agree with them. All right. So the question isn't, is Johnny or Susie uh, uh, being sp spoken well of the world? What I'm talking about today is the church being, is the church roundly and, and truly hated by the powers that be in the United States of America? Oh, I know. You got a few left-wing nuts out there, and they hate the church. But they only hate the churches that disagree with them politically. There's very, very few. What's going on in our culture when the church is flavorless and saltless? What's going on in our culture when hardly any preachers are hated? How come, how come we don't have all of the preachers utterly hated in the United States? Woe to you when men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same. This is a rhetorical question. The devil's going to do the devil. 
Devil's going to do what the devil does. Children of the devil are going to do what the devil does. Why does the church, one, is so ineffective? Number two, why is the church not utterly despised and hated? Oh, and the preachers will talk about this. Theoretically, we're despised and hated, but where's the real hatred? Where's the real persecution of the church? Where's the real deep-seated antagonism towards specific pastors for specific things they say? And the answer is there isn't any. And the question becomes, who's got the problem now? Matthew chapter 10. We'll close out with this. Matthew 10, 24. You're up. No, Matthew 10, 24. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. You want to use this? Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Keep going. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? All right. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough if a disciple, he becomes like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, who's the head of the house? Jesus Christ. And they called him Beelzebub. They said, you're casting out demons by the power of the devil himself. They said that to Jesus Christ. And here's Jesus said, look, if they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more they will they malign the members of the household? My question is, are the members of the are the Christians being called the devil? A few are, a few of us are. But the fact of the matter is, it's very, very, very few out there. And no wonder the church has no power. We're friends with the world. Verse 24, therefore, do not fear them. Do not fear powerful people. Do not fear evil people when they call you demon-possessed and a Nazi and a racist and a sexist and a homophobic. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about in 2023 because nobody believes in the devil anymore. So the closest thing to the devil is some historical figure from the, the mid-20th century. They can't call you the devil because they don't believe in the devil. But if they're not calling you something... That's a reflection on the church. We're too close to the world. Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed, hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim from the house to the top. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus Christ is not a kinder and gentler Jesus 2.0. Jesus Christ is the original Jesus Christ 1.0. He says, fear me, who can cast both body and soul into hell. So when I look at the world today, when I look at the United States today, I, I can't, I'm not blaming the rhinos. I'm not blaming the Democrats. I'm not even blaming the devil. 
I'm saying, church, where are you, man? Where are you? If, if we're not roundly hated and called Beelzebul in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, maybe it's our problem. That's it. Fritz Bergen signing off. Bloodandfaith.com. And this will be uh, posted later on up at Blood and Faith. And uh, come and visit me there. Bloodandfaith.com. Talk to you guys soon.